The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, how Russia's weakened forces are regrouping for an assault on Kyiv, and we speak to a Ukrainian MP with a plea. Don't leave us to fight World War III alone. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 16, and today I'm with The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant foreign editor, Vini Shireni, and Mutaz Ahmed from our common team. So let's start with some updates from the front. Let's start with the news that the giant armoured convoy that's been sitting north of Kyiv is on the move. Dom Nichols, uh, what's happening there? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So it looks like this this column, this stalled column uh, of about 40 miles that we've been watching for the last, crikey, 10 days or so north of Kyiv is is moving. Not not in one direction, not sort of heading straight down the road towards Kyiv, but it seems like it's like it's breaking up into smaller packets and uh, it's still assessed that it's it's heading for the capital city. The, uh, the British MOD put out its latest intelligence this morning and it said, um, although Russian ground forces have made limited progress because of logistic efforts hampered by um, the strong Ukrainian resistance, it said Russia's likely to reset and reposture its forces for renewed offensive activity in the coming days. And that will probably include operations against Kyiv. So it looks like they're finally getting moving towards Kyiv. Now, a couple of points here. Firstly, Getting there is one thing. Having any meaningful military activity there is quite another. So to seal off the city from reinforcements from outside and then to, to, to have an effect inside, you need, you need a, huge, a huge number of troops, more than they've got already. Um, and then that's going to take an all-arms grouping. So not just tanks and infantry. You're going to need engineering assets, medics, logisticians, air defence, the full works, electronic warfare, signalers, etc., etc., um, and so far, Russia has shown, the ground forces have shown that they're just not able to do that kind of combined arms um, activity. Now, all armies are sort of forged in the white heat of battle, and there's been two weeks of it now. So maybe Russian ground forces have, have sort of regrouped and got themselves together, and we might see a, a, a more professional performance from them. But everything we've seen uh, to date, including that... Um, that extraordinary video yesterday of the of the Russian column to the east of Kiev being being uh, attacked by Russia uh, by our Ukrainian artillery, just shows that they're they're not. We don't think they're they're fully swept up, all arms uh, capable yet. Thanks, Tom. Venetia, do you want to take us through what else has been happening? Yeah, so we've also seen today, and this is pretty significant, the first airstrikes on Dnipro. Now, Dnipro is a a, a major city right in the centre um, of Ukraine. And we, there were some strikes right on the very first of the, the first day of the invasion. There were explosions in cities all over Ukraine caused by cruise missiles. It was sort of like a scare tactic. But we haven't seen anything in Dnipro since then. So the fact that there's been an airstrike today is is significant. It shows that Russia is both escalating its air campaign and is starting to sort of move ahead with its strategy of trying to cut off the east. So the Dnipro, the, the shelling Dnipro left one person dead. It was an overnight security guard called Petrovich. 
Um, and we also saw airstrikes in uh, in Lutsk and Ivansk, in Ivano-Frankovsk and Rivne. Those are cities out in the west. And that shows how the air campaign is, is really stepping up. The point of Dnipro is that once the Russian troops are able to reach it from, from the south, where they're moving up from, from Crimea and then from the north, they will be able to cut off this eastern part of Ukraine where there's already this separatist region and there's been fighting for years. And if they do manage to cut it off by taking Dnipro or, or making it so difficult with heavy fighting on those routes that the Ukrainians can no longer resupply their forces in the east, then that would make things very tricky indeed for the Ukrainian government. Thanks, Venetia. Dom, you, you mentioned it briefly. Could we go into this extraordinary video of um, the Russian armoured convoy that's that's shelled by by the by the Ukrainian armed forces, and as as somebody that's worked worked in tanks and as a soldier, could you talk us through a little bit? What, what are you seeing professionally? Yeah, so this happened yesterday morning, about ten k's to the east of of Kiev, a district called Brovary, and it was it was one of the main routes, a dual carriageway heading towards the capital city, and there was a group of, I mean, I counted thirty armoured vehicles, T seventy two. BTR-80s, BRDMs, a few other bits and pieces in there, um, including the the TOS-1 launcher, the thermobaric launcher, uh, which unfortunately escaped escaped from it. Um, and it was filmed from a drone, we, we're pretty certain. Whether or not that drone was actually calling in the artillery strike, we don't know. Again, this came from Ukrainian military sources, so um, yeah, there's always, a, always caveats around all, all of these things, of course. Uh, but it looked to show a, a huge number of, of vehicles bunched really closely together. I mean, within about 150 metres, I, w- I would estimate, um, which speaks of a certain nervousness, like, like, hum- like humans, even when you're in vehicles, you try to bunch together when you're, when you're a bit scared. Uh, but it was uh, tactically a, com- a complete mess. I mean, it was, we, we see a number of, of rounds landing, assessed as artillery rather than, than any other missiles or, or tank fire. But we th- so we think it was artillery. Um, a couple of direct hits, so so we think three vehicles were were completely destroyed and left behind. Others were damaged. As the rounds land, we see um, soldiers running back towards their vehicles, back towards the relative safety of the vehicles. Um, in itself, not not a bad tactic. I mean, when you go when you go firm somewhere, it's it's better for the for the infantry to get out. Um, but they should get out and provide air cover. And if they're not able to spot this drone that was watching them, then they they you know they should have had some kind of effect, um, you'd, you'd like to think. Or if they were tactically aware enough to get out, they, they should have spread out. Um, but they rushed back to the vehicles and then and then head back the way they came with artillery rounds, sort of chasing them out of the town. Um, so it shows it shows very, very poor tactics by the Russian column to be so close together. But also it shows that the, the Ukrainians weren't able to absolutely decimate it with fire, which either suggests that the coordination between the the, the drone that was watching them and the you know any artillery batteries or anyone else on the ground that could do something about it was not there or there weren't enough batteries within range or not enough ammunition or, or what have you but they should they should have been a much heavier weight of fire coming back down on them i mean the the it's assessed or on social media it was said that the the tank uh, battalion commander um was killed in the strike and there was the the radio intercepts were um suggested such and he's been named on social media uh, so you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a complete disaster for the Russians, but again just showed showed a, a glaring lack of tactical awareness. Um, but I would caveat it by saying that it also shows what the Ukrainians were were not capable of doing. So you know, there's there, both sides. I think have a lot to uh, a lot to take away from that. And just to stay on that, just for one more moment, 
Dom, from your perspective, looking at the this redeployment of the armoured convoy, do, should we expect a the, the, the battle for Kiev to, to begin relatively soon? Um, well, I mean, you could argue the battle for Kiev started two weeks ago. Um, so, General or just recently retired Major General Mick Ryan, Australian Army officer, another guy you should all be following on Twitter. He uh, he's held he's gone into he's done a lot of lengthy. Uh, Twitter threads about about what it takes, what it means to actually um, encircle a city of the size of, of Kiev and and the kind of forces it requires. And so, as I said earlier, getting there is one thing. Having some kind of military effect is is quite another. You need a cordon on the outside to stop any reinforcements getting in. You need a cordon on the inside to then go and go and kill anyone inside who wants to stay and fight. Um, you do need an all arms grouping. You need air defence. You need everything talking to everything. And of course, you're if you are heavy-handed about it, you'll be knocking out um, infrastructure and making and uh, denying roads and bridges and all the rest of it. So it's a massive undertaking to have any kind of effect in the city. So we should be very cautious about saying the Battle for Kiev is about, is about to start because it will take quite a while for the Russians to get there and to shake out into a into a decent formation to approach the city. And I come back to a city of the size of it is. Um, about sort of 25 k's north to south, 35 k's uh, east to west. You, you need a you need a, a cordon of about 90 kilometres, and so we're talking about this 40 mile convoy north of Kiev. Well, they're going to need more troops, and and that's that's just to set yourself up to then actually assault the city. You need a huge huge number more than that. Um, I mean, arguably, to, if you're going to fight your way through urban combat, building to building, house to house, room to room, through a city the size of Kiev, as as um, sophisticated as it is, with all the all the routes and tunnels and the and the time they've had to prepare, uh, arguably the two hundred thousand ish troops we think Russia went into Ukraine with will all be all be soaked up easily and more and more required to take a city of that size. So things are happening, but but we should be cautious about saying anything's about to uh, keeps about to fall or there's going to be major battles in the next few days. Thanks very much for that nuance. Um- Venetia, can we bring you in here? Um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the some of the reinforcements that that Russia has uh, has asked for from 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 the Federation. Yes, we've seen some news today that Moscow has got more than sixteen thousand volunteers, and I say that in scare quotes, to bolster its army in Ukraine. This is clearly a sign that things aren't going to plan. We've already heard that they're having to lean on conscripts, which doesn't normally happen. And now they're bringing in volunteers from from abroad. So we we heard earlier this week that um, Syrian fighters were being asked to sign up for a salary of $300 a month on six-month contracts. Um, And we've seen some more footage today of Syrian fighters cheering, apparently ready to go fight in Ukraine. They were holding up posters with the letter Z on it, which has become a Russian pro-war symbol. Um, So clearly they're having to look further abroad to draft in further fighters to to boost their troops, where we've seen very low morale and equipment problems and all the things we've been talking about on this show. Um, And obviously that comes in the wake of Moscow also drafting in Chechens to bolster its troops. So we can clearly see that this is a sign that the Russian troops on their own are, are not achieving the effect that Putin was hoping for. And do we know anything about these troops? Are, are they particularly effective? Um, should the Ukrainians be worried? I mean, it really depends who the, the Chechen troops are very effective. Who they're getting from Syria is is not quite clear. And at the moment, I think it's 
largely propaganda, whether there are actually 16,000 Syrians ready to march into Ukraine, I'd be very doubtful. But of course, Russia was very involved in the Syrian war, and I'm sure there will be some people who they can tempt over with the offer of money, whether they'll be especially motivated, how well trained they'll be. That's another question. Obviously, this, the conflict in Syria has been going for a long time, so they'll be, they'll be battle hardened. But will that be suited to the kind of conflict that's playing out in Ukraine? They certainly won't have the same sense of needing to fight for their country that the Ukrainians have, or the same loyalty perhaps to Putin that the Russians have. Mishas, what's your take on the mercenaries? These mercenary groups are something we see in a lot of conflicts in Africa and in the Middle East, uh, and they're not very professional. Uh, and it's, uh, we haven't actually seen mercenary groups engage in sort of major ground battles in Europe, but we just haven't seen it. It, it would be astonishing if they brought in these mercenaries. They have no regard for human rights at all. As Venetia just said, this, this, this morale problem in the Russian army where some Russians have trouble shooting at fellow Slavs, that wouldn't be a problem for these mercenaries. They are utterly, utterly just, you know, inhumane. Uh, it would be a disaster if, if they brought in these mercenaries. It's a very scary, uh, frightening uh, threat, um, and it, it would it would be another escalation. Yes, it's a, it's it, it reflects ru- Russian weakness, but it also shows the lengths that Putin is willing to go to 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 cause harm to Ukraine. Dom, I don't know if you want to come in on that at all. Well, I I would just argue, or I just make the point that that this is not by far not the first time Russia has done this. We've um, we did a big um, piece last year on the on the Wagner Group, these alleged mercenaries um, who can only operate with state support. So I mean, they, they they may be they may have boots and and guns, but they haven't got um, air assets and and anything heavier. And, and less than until it's it's it was uh, supplied in Libya, I'm thinking in particular here, uh, but also Syria um, from the Russian state. So um, yeah, the, the mercenary groups, Russia's Use them before. We'll we'll seek to use them again. And um, as Nisha Mutas said, that, yeah, there's no there's no rules really with with these people. Um, so it's, it's not a it's not a great development at all. Turning to Russia, um, Vinisha, there have been some interesting things on Russian state TV, which um, for the I believe it's the first time broadcast something which was actually anti-war. Can you tell us about this? What happened? Yeah. So there was a. Um Obviously, Russia's television is all state-controlled, and we've seen a massive clampdown on any kind of other independent journalism in the last few weeks. And so Russians are increasingly having to get all of their news from a very small number of outlets. And what we saw um, on a primetime TV talk show last night was... um, Uh, A former Russian Duma member and an academic asking, do we need to get into another Afghanistan, but even worse? There are more people in Ukraine and they're more advanced in their weapon handling. We don't need that enough already. The reference to Afghanistan is obviously incredibly significant. Um, The the Soviet Union, as it was then, pulled out of Afghanistan in 1989, 10 years after it invaded. And historians have said that that contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union. It was a disastrous war for them. Thousands of Soviet soldiers were killed and it became deeply deeply unpopular at home. so that's pretty that's pretty significant. He's already seeing a backlash against him in Russia, predictably. We also saw on another TV channel um, a serving army officer saying that uh, lots of Russian soldiers are dying, um, and Russians are slowly becoming aware of this. But it hasn't been you know said on state-controlled TV yet. He started talking about how our guys over there are 
are dying, our special operation forces are dying. And he was interrupted very quickly by the presenter who tried to stop him. Um, but, you know, those, those words are out there and, it, and that, is, that is significant. That's not something that Russians who have only been watching state TV will have, will have come across so far. Gosh, that does feel like quite a development if it's if it's starting to sort of seep out, yeah, as you said, even through state TV. Uh, there's a couple of other things, I think. Um, Venetia, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about the this story um, about the about Ukraine's answer to Sigrid Sassoon, the fav, famous World War I uh, war poet. Um, talk to us about that. What's the story? We've got we've got several reporters in Ukraine at the moment. One of them is Colin Freeman, who's in Kiev for us right now, um, and he's been doing some wonderful dispatches. And he did one for us yesterday, where he went to some of the frontline trenches in the northwest of the city, so close to where the sort of convoy was. Um, and he was meeting soldiers there, just ordinary men who have been, you know, um, have signed up to fight. And one of them was this this poet. He's 23 and he's been composing p- poetry about his sort of life on the front. Um, and he said he'd always, he's always written verse for pleasure previously and he'd won a couple of local poetry contests in the city. But, you know, now obviously he's a soldier, but he still thinks that his poetry helps him make sense of what's happening. And the rest of his unit like to listen to it as well. Um, I'll just read you very quickly a sort of translation of one of his verses. Tanks moving to the trenches and someone shouting, hide now, you Ukrainians, I'll kill you all at once. But the Ukrainian soldiers don't run and their bullets shoot the enemy. He's written other poetry about sort of mothers waiting at home and sending boys off. It's it's very patriotic stuff, so perhaps not quite as bleak as what Siegfried Sassoon was writing about back in back um, earlier at the beginning of the century. But it's, it's really beautiful. And I think it's just one of those lovely human stories that just helps us to show who these, who these people are on the front lines and the ordinary lives that they lead. Thanks, Venetia. Mutaz and Dom, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I'm afraid not. I was described at my army selection board as a cultural desert. So no point coming to me asking about poetry, I'm afraid. <laughs> um it's very inspiring I, it's been touching to see all all the all this sort of creativity and you know in the face of total inhumanity and sort of war it 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 should bring these things to light i've been surprised by the sort of patriotism of it, people even in in russian speaking parts of ukraine some people in mariupol for instance um it, it's it's been striking how united ukraine has become through 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 this russian invasion um so yeah and later we'll have an interview with a ukrainian politician a deputy of ukraine who sits in the vakovna rada so that's the ukrainian um is the equivalent of the house of commons she's called maria inova and it was an incredibly fascinating and moving interview and she she talks very movingly about um about freedom and about why ukrainians are willing to to die for their country let's move uh towards politics there's been quite a bit of movement in international diplomacy today um uh, it was on our it was leading our website this morning that British pu- the British public will be asked to take in um, Ukrainian refugees uh, into, into into our homes. Uh, Mutaz and Dom, do you want to speak to that a little bit? This this is quite a change of tune from from the British government when it comes to Ukrainian refugees. It's part it's part of the face saving exercise. You know, this is announced by not by the Home Office but by Michael Gove, um, uh, and and the scheme. You know, at, we're talking about tens of thousands of refugees at first it, it, for this scheme, um, and it's an addition to the 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 main scheme, which is the visa scheme, which has also been updated to allow Ukrainians to to apply entirely 
online, um, which which solves some of the problems, um, not all of them. You know, there, there are other small issues, such as the fact that you know the visa office in Poland shuts at five o'clock, which is ridiculous. Um, things like that, but it, it, it's part of the government. Through you know this week, the government has basically acknowledged that its its initial response to the refugee crisis was lacking. And it's now playing catch up, and that's that's what we're seeing. Tom Nichols, if you need a comparison, have a look at what's happened to um, those that we we have the moral obligation to steal from Afghanistan, and um, the application there, the two schemes to get uh, people from Afghanistan out, uh, has not been uh, has not covered us, uh, the country in glory. And uh, and in fact, I know I've been working with 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 a group to get some. Uh, some Afghan uh, former National Director of Security people out, the people who were trained by GCHQ uh, and did great work against the Taliban um, and then were seemingly left behind. Um, and it took it took a, a fairly pointed article in our newspaper, I'm told, to suddenly unlock the gates and get these people uh, on in, in the system and, and moving. So, uh, yes, the government, um, the government... The government always does the right thing. Having exhausted every other possibility, and I think this is another example of that. No, definitely. There's also in in Russia. We saw. I mean, it's on it's on our live blog for Ukraine today that Putin has said that there are certain positive shifts in talks with Ukraine. What do we make of that? Is that that surely must be a good sign? Um, but can we read anything anything more into those remarks? Mutaz Ahmed. I wouldn't read too much into it. Putin says lots of things, um, but. Look, the, we've discussed the facts. The fact is that, as Dominic, um, uh, as as Dom was, was saying earlier, it's it's it would be very tough for Russia to uh, assault Kiev. The person who sort of protested on or, or, or um, uh, complained on Russian television um, about the Russian invasion mentioned Kiev and said that any assault on Kiev would lead to a humanitarian catastrophe. So there's a, great, a dawning sort of realisation now, even in the Kremlin, uh, and, you know, we see all these reports about Putin being angry at the uh, spy agencies and the FSB. There's a dawning realisation that a full-scale invasion of Ukraine will not succeed. They will not be able to hold Ukraine um, uh, for very long, and that ultimately the solution will have to be some negotiated settlement um, where hopefully at least part of Ukraine is able to retain its sovereignty. So we're going to see probably Russian troops surrounding Kiev while the negotiation is ongoing as a sort of point of leverage. Um, and, and the question now is, is what, what, what sort of diplomatic, strategic wins can Putin draw from it? Um, so, you know, the war is ongoing. It's going badly for Putin. He's recognised it now. And... Everything should be seen in that light. In that sense, I guess it is positive, but, um, you know, we'll see. And Dom, how do you think we should read Putin's remarks today? It, it's very easy to say, to, to speak these things. I mean, we hear it all the time from Lavrov as well, the foreign, um, foreign affairs minister, all, the, all these talks of, of what, what they want to do and how, how they don't want violence and they're only there to do this that, and the other. I mean, yeah, actions speak louder than words. I think we should just, just leave it at that and see what they see what they do on the ground before we listen. Let's listen to their words and by all means engage. And as I've said many, many times, you know, talking is, is, always, is better than fighting. And if you, if you have to you talk at the same time, that, that's good. Um, but let's see what the actions are. 
we're at the end of we're at the end of the week. Um, I'd be interested if we if we you know we won't meet again until until Monday. What have been the big shifts and the big takeaways you think from 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 this entire week, Dom? Well, for me, it's it's the the tactical inability to uh, shift in contact with the enemy. And what I mean by that, is, and it's very difficult. If you're having a fight, if you're fighting somebody and you're holding them off with one hand and trying to punch them in the face with the other, it's very very difficult to then. Um, you know, get your running shoes on or put your boxing gloves on. I think I've taken that metaphor about as far as I can. But what I mean is that, that this is the might of the Russian military machine we're looking at here. We were surprised in the, in the, uh, the early days that um, they got bogged down and the, the advance wasn't as swift as we were expecting. But we kind of went, well, you know, it's always the fog of war and you hit these difficulties, but they'll, they'll get over it. It's now two weeks in and they've barely moved. So they've, they've not been able to... to adjust their procedures, their their organisations, the way they do things, the way they plan these operations. There's still no link between, or very little link between the air and the ground. Um, there was a great piece from CNN, actually, um, out today. They've been on, on board a NATO AWACS plane, Airborne Warning and Control System, so basically like air traffic control in the sky. And they said that, um, that the vast majority, this is NATO, saying that the vast majority of the, the Russian-made jets seen flying into Ukraine or operating in Ukraine uh, came from Belarus, um, and it's only about ten or twenty aircraft a day. Now that that is that's a that's a tiny a tiny amount. It's a tiny amount of the aircraft they've got available, and there's no way to run an air campaign, let alone try and then knit together the air and the ground. Um, Andy Netherwood, who's a who's a former RAF officer, good guy, good voice on this on this kind of stuff, and he said he said ten to twenty isn't an ATO, that's an air, a daily air tasking order, the sort of battle for the day. 10 to 20 isn't an ATO, it's the back of an envelope. I mean, this is Mickey Mouse stuff. They should be doing better than that now. And I'm just amazed that we're having very similar conversations to, the, to those that we were a week ago when we were saying, well, Russia don't seem to be performing as well as we thought. And they're still doing it. So I'm surprised, but I'm also extremely nervous because the longer this goes on, the more talk we've seen this week about chemical weapons and so on and so forth, the, the longer this goes on, not only are people dying every single day, but the more likelihood there is that, that, that Russia will, get, uh, will, will turn to a much more violent strategy and start uh, levelling uh, urban areas. So it's very surpri- surprising still, um, but not necessarily a good sign. Still, still indicates that they've They've lost the war strategically. It's now just a question of what state um, Ukraine and and the the population can come out of it. Yeah, just mutas. This week we've sort of confirmed that the Russian army isn't what we thought it was. Um, so sort of the incompetence has been extraordinary. Um, we we published um, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges on Tuesday, I think, um, who was the commanding general of U.S. Army Europe, and and he made the assessment then that he was pretty confident. Russia would not be able to hold Ukraine, and he was fairly confident Russia would not be able to uh, um, take Kiev. And I, I think a lot of people are coming to that conclusion now. The question, I think, next week and the week after is, what happens next? And it, and it can go in one of two directions, really. We can either go down that route that Don was talking about, you know, chemical weapons. You know, I, I see the Ukrainians claiming today that Russia might be plotting a terrorist attack on Chernobyl. Um you know, diverting mercenaries from Syria and Sierra Leone and so on. It can get really nasty. Or perhaps, you know, seeing the pressure from Russian mothers and and from certain, and and from the Russian middle class and certain parts of uh, the Russian media, Putin might be considering um, taking this to talks now and and retaining, I don't know, the Donbass maybe, or, or getting recognition for Crimea or something like that. So, 
the Russian army really is, it's been rather embarrassing. Um, and the Ukrainians have far, far exceeded expectations. So this week has just cemented those two, those two facts. Thanks again, Mutaz and Venetia and, and Dom for your insight. It's, it's fascinating and horrifying as always. A last thought for me, just to echo your point, David, that, that these have been, um, that we've been doing this now for, for 10 days-ish. I'd be very keen to hear from, from people listening, DM me or email or, or get in touch with the Telegraph anyway, anyway if, if you wish to let us know what you think and, um, and any other talking points that you think we should be covering. So, um, yeah, very, very, very keen to engage. While doing this podcast, we've been acutely aware that we are journalists sitting in a safe and warm London studio. So from the beginning of the invasion, we've wanted to give a platform to Ukrainian voices to share their experiences of the things we are analysing from afar. So earlier today, we spoke to Maria Ionova. Maria is a politician, a people's deputy of Ukraine. That's the equivalent of an MP. Maria sits in the Vakovna Rada, Ukraine's unicameral parliament, in former President Petro Poroshenko's European Solidarity Party. She was elected in 2012 and sits on the Committee of Foreign Affairs. For her safety, Maria spoke to us from an undisclosed location. I can't imagine how it feels to see Russian strikes on hospitals, on towns that that you know well, towns that you represent, and in the south your countrymen digging mass graves. Could you give us a sense of your emotions when you see these things on the news? Oh, (laughs) Telling the truth at the very beginning, we were not trying to be very emotional because there were so many things to do. As you know, a lot of our MPs from our faction, they are now in territorial defense with the weapon they're defending Kiev. And uh, it's, <laughs> I even cannot say it in English how it's hard because, you know, all those people from, from Lugansk Oblast, from Chernigov, and you get these calls from people every day for three times, like, save us. And Mariupol, it's an example of what Putin would like to do with the whole Ukraine. I mean, as you know, in Mariupol, which is 500,000 citizens, it's already around 30,000 people have been killed and died. Only for these two weeks. You know, I think that it's not enough to provide humanitarian green corridors. I mean, we have to save these people. And children, you know this news that children were died from not only from killings, but dehydration, hunger. I mean, can we imagine that we have people who are dying because they do not have any products? I mean, it's 21st century, of course. And we also hear Putin that he will use chemical weapon. Of course, before such a, a huge aggression, we were asking our partners to provide preventing measures, to provide this preventing sanctions. We were not heard. And it's painful, I can tell you now. And it's also bad that our people, you know, who are so clear on European values and democratic principles now, we even cannot get air defense. If we have air defense, and we are sure it will be much more easier to attack them and, you know, to save hundreds of lives. It's, how to say in English, like, heart is bleeding. I can tell you like this. So we just start news, for example, in Chernigiv, it's on the north of our country. One of the local, which Russians wanted him to be nominated as the Russian government, he shooted himself. He shooted himself because he didn't want to work with Russia authorities. People are ready to die. We saw in the UK, your... Your president, Volodymyr Zelensky, gave a really moving address to, to Parliament. And it was, it was live screened to the House of Commons, the House of Lords, the first time. 
What would you want British MPs who, who are listening or, or reading The Telegraph to understand? We think that sanctions are good, and uh, but it's also has all sanctions has to be not only on Russia but also on Belarus, because now Belarus they're using and they're giving their airports for air fighters, and also for example, you know that the UK provided on bank system sanctions, but I'm sorry, not enough, not on Gas Bank, not on Central Bank. I mean, these banks are the main banks for financing their military issues. And that is why Russia has to be isolated, really. And it, it has to be very painful for them. We, we have to stop a military way, at least ceasefire. I mean, we are asking the ceasefire. And also, as you know, today will be our, a historical day on our EU integration. You know, that European Union, uh, they provided a special procedure on candidacy uh, uh, of our country. But unfortunately... We're concerned on French and German position. And we think that we are not, we will not go on any blackmail of Russia Federation where we have to refuse of our NATO status or of our EU integration. No, this is, this is our values and this is our principles. I mean, our heroes uh, during the revolution of dignity, they were dying for these values. And our armed forces, our military guys, they are dying now for this freedom to be in democratic country, to become, I mean, we are a democratic country. And we also, you know, hear from European friends that the main value is human life. We know it, but we are asking our partners and friends also to defend our people who are dying now. And that is why we don't think, I mean, the Third World War has been already started, but only Ukraine fighting in this war. And the time will come that USA and all other countries will be in this war. And as soon they will help us, we will win sooner than if we will be without them. I mean, that is why, of course, we are really waiting Yes, it's hard decision. We understand. But we would like them to be as brave as our Ukrainian people. Not only our great Ukrainian army, but Ukrainian people who are in territorial defense. You know that in territorial defense, now you will not be able also to registrate because it's no place. I mean, we have more people are ready to fight, but just we don't have weapon, we don't have gear, we don't have helmets. And we understand that Putin will go further and only together we can stop him. And now, like helping Ukraine, especially with air fighters, our partners can help themselves. My understanding is you, you grew up in the Soviet Union and then you've gone through Ukraine's emergence as an ind independent country. How does that feel to go from living under direct control from, from Moscow to being a free country to again fighting Russia? I was always like anti-Soviet person. We were speaking in the family in Ukrainian language and we knew that history, which was forbidden in our country. And that is why, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just for me, it's, it's my nature, you know, to be European, to be Ukrainian. We have a great history of our country. That's also what Putin wants. He, do, he doesn't have history. I mean, Russia, they do not have history. That is why he hates everything Ukrainian. And so that is why for me, really painful every time to prove that we are Ukrainians really belongs to European family. We 
have a great history. We have a great nation. We have a brave nation. We are really very hardworking people. And, uh, you know, we are not against Russia, but we are for Ukraine. And that is why we were trying to explain that we, after renovation of our history, you know, that this year, oh, this year, in, in, in August uh, 2021, we celebrated 30 years of our independence. But that was a renovation of our independence because Russian was every time, you know, they changed our history all the time when we were fighting for our independence. And that is why now we don't want, you know, to return to this circle, historical circle again. We really better die than we will be again under their occupation. Maria, thank you so much. Is there anything you think our listeners or our readers should know that we haven't discussed? Yeah, I'd like to say and to address really, of course, we appreciate United Kingdom of their policy and also to people. We see how many people also they are protesting against war and stop Putin and stand with Ukraine. And we really uh, appreciate this diplomatic support, but... We kindly ask also your people, and we understand that thank you for your job as a journalist, because people will know more that we are here fighting for really for independence. And our price is very high, very high. This, uh, this war is really very brutal and very dramatic as, you know, uh, the whole families were, were shooted and are shooting families with children. And we even expecting how many people as are in their houses have been, I mean, just killed lying waiting for, you know, for human to bury them as a humans. But also in, in terms of political and moral support, we really would like to propose a high level manifestation of international unity and solidarity, you know, with Ukraine in Kyiv, with participation really of Western leaders on high-level politicians. We remember how it was in Georgia in 2008. You remember how President Yushin got to invite the Lithuanian president and Paul, Paul Polish president. That that's really will help. I mean, we, we are really looking forward for such brave politicians who value human life, who value democratic principles, who value such countries who are fighting really now with the absolutely crazy murder, with war terrorists. And that is why now we think that the leadership of Western countries also has to make this great step and to come to Kyiv, to come to Ukraine, to see by their own eyes what is going on and to show Putin that we are all together. And we will win because Putin thinks that only like, you know, Ukrainians are now fighting with him. No. And that is why we really can stop this war against Ukraine in Ukraine. But this war is against the whole democratic world. That is why we ask you to push also your politicians to be brave also in their decisions and in their actions. Thank you. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm every weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest, on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.